Another one I've kind of noticed too, Cliff, that took a few years to sink in was after high wind days, even in, you know, warm weather, no snow, if we have a really high wind day, and we're talking, you know, like a an advisory is, is issued by the National yeah. Weather Service, whatever that is, you know, 30 mile an hour, 40 mile an hour throughout the day, those deer hunker down, they don't like that. And the yeah. next day can be as good of hunting as it is after a giant snowstorm. I've, I've seen yeah, that. I've seen the deer. Hungry. They're up. They're up for hours. They, you just can't make a mistake. You know, it, it... the rock cast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a RockCast promo code. Okay, Rock Sliders, it's Robbie Denning. I'm back. It's a cold Monday morning, 7 a.m. here on Mountain Time, God's Time, as Ryan Avery calls it. And I tracked down somebody that I've been following for a long time. Um, I think he's a stand-up guy. Uh, he does some really different stuff out there to help people become better hunters. And that's really what I'm always about is just, just helping people become a better hunter. Uh, when I was a young man, people helped me become a better hunter. And I, I want to pass that on to the next generation. Um, so today I'm going to introduce you to, to probably one of the most helpful guys on Instagram. You can tell by watching his stuff. It's not really about him. It's about helping people become better at deer hunting, elk hunting, sheep, goats, elk, and of course our beloved mule deer. Um, he's a Stan Stanford educated outfitter. I don't know if you could find another one in the United States out there, but, but that's what he is. Um, You're making me blush, man. <laughs> and you can hear him in the background everybody that is cliff gray formerly of flat tops wilderness guides he's uh he's moved on from there but uh he's he's continuing to uh, have a presence out there in the hunting world and i i think a dang good presence so welcome to the podcast cliff thanks robbie thanks for having me man you bet man so besides being stanford educated you can also run a pack string and like i said i don't know very many guys that can do both <laughs> you gotta yeah, tell it's... me man how did you, what's this whole stanford thing about man i mean most most outfitters dude they, they they worked at the waffle house and then they're an outfitter and then they're back at the <laughs> waffle house that doesn't seem to be your journey man so tell me about this well dude the first thing i have to say like kind of on that topic robbie you know my my years outfitting the the folks that really excelled at it, you know, built up pretty big businesses and, and, you know, had good reputations over the long haul. It's actually, ironically, I think one of the hardest businesses to operate there is just because there's so many uncontrollables. Yep. So, uh, so yeah, there might be like a bunch of guys out there that may not have like that educational background, but from like a business entrepreneurial uh, aspect, uh, it's funny because I've been around other businesses and I think some of those outfitters out there that really excelled are probably still you know, some of the folks that are the best at that stuff, you know, you, but, uh, you gotta have but, a business background to, to, to do well at it. Cause it is still a business, but it's interesting what you said. It's one of those businesses that you can't promise you're going to be able to deliver on the product and you charge yeah, man, a lot I mean, of money, you know, it's, it's I mean, a tough imagine, space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, imagine running a, like a McDonald's or a grocery store with the type of like you know, just uncontrollable variables that an outfitter has to deal with. It's a, uh, it's a totally different, different world. It is, man. It is. So, but, uh, but yeah. So you went to Stanford and, and I think you said you studied economics and computer science, right? 
Yeah, so I did. And and so like, I'll, yeah, I'll give you the short run rundown on that. So when I was a kid, my dad was an outfitter and, and a cattle rancher. So I was exposed to it that way. Okay. And then through all my years as a kid, I was, I was exposed to livestock and, and we always had horses and mules. So I knew how to, you know, I was familiar <clears throat> with, you know, riding, being up in the mountains, packing, all of that really as a kid, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, not even as an adult, I really built up that experience and, you know, wilderness outfitting. And, and I don't know, you know, where your exposure originally came from on horses and mules, Robbie, but it's probably, probably that, that livestock component is maybe the steepest learning curve. Right. And a lot of people in the business, they actually got exposed to that as kids, you know? Yep. Um, and so I had that in my back pocket and then, yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough, you know, to, uh, for whatever reason to have a, I think if I was being honest, probably just a very motivated mother and just made us, you know, work like crazy on schoolwork and everything else. And, uh-huh. and, uh, dude, my parents were like hardworking, like American dream type of people. Like they yep. just busted that busted their butt to get where they got. And I think when they, raised me and my brothers they wanted us to you know maybe take a different route and so we kind of got pushed to go get great educations and and we all did and uh it was awesome and then I tried that route for three or four years I I was I actually worked in finance I was a trader for three or four years as a young guy um and fairly successful at that had fun but it just wasn't going to last from from a psychological perspective Mm -hmm. so uh there's a, there's a, like a, another long story inside of that, like how I made the transition, but basically, you know, at 25, 26, I was back up in the mountains and, and, uh, and outfitting and, uh, and went from there. So that's the, that's the story. Maybe not the most traditional, but there's little aspects in there that I think are, uh, you know, probably a lot of people that end up, end up up in the mountains working regardless, regardless of what it is. There's little things in there that that uh, just psychologically brought them brought them back to the outdoors, you know. You bet, and I think that's why you're such an interesting person, and why I wanted to bring that up, you know, for the listeners. Um, you know, you're very very non traditional in 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 your approach to everything, and 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 we'll talk about this in a little bit. And and now you're non traditionally living the Jimmy Buffett lifestyle, which we're all <laughs> coveting pretty hard and everything. But 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 that's pretty cool, Cliff. And um, um, I, I think for uh for everybody that's just getting to know you right now, one re- a couple reasons I wanted to have you on here was was that just it's interesting background, and uh, you know what I said. You've got some really interesting stuff on Instagram and, you know, I work in social media. I run rock slide with my partner, Ryan Avery, you know, I'm around this world all the time and you can sniff out, you know, who who's there for themselves and, and then who's there to, to help people. And, you know, I think social media is just naturally a, a media of, Hey, look at me. You know, I'm sure sometimes people look at my posts and think that, but a lot of times when I look at yours, you know, there's a lot, of, a lot of how to in it. And, um, you know, so for the listeners today, that's, that's really why I was bringing him on is, is he's got a, a extensive knowledge of multi-species uh, hunting. Uh, we're going to ask him about that with, with, with a focus on mule deer and, um, because because Cliff spent and when you're an outfitter and and I'm an outfitter too I've been an outfitter for for over 20 years um, it is it is immersive education it is like nothing else that you can do to expand your hunting knowledge in my opinion because as 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 a solo hunter you know you're a sample size of one 
Um, you know, you're, you're exper- at the end of the year, y- you look back on your experiences. You're just looking at, at a very small sample size. You know, what happened to me? You know, what did I learn from it? But when you're an outfitter and you're working with dozens of people a year, you, you, you get, you get um, a wide angle view, a 10,000 foot view, whatever you want to call it, of all these different experiences and how mindsets and physical capability and shooting capability and, you know, just, just beliefs about hunting and how that all plays into your success. And um, would you agree with that Cliff? Yeah. I mean, you know, I would agree with it, Robbie there. I think it's any skill set, just exposure, you know, hunting's unique because it's seasonal for all of us. And, Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of hunters, for better or worse, we can only, you know, we can only dedicate so much time to it, you know, on an annual basis. So we don't get like this massive data set to, to draw from. And I don't, I don't mean that in a way to say that the only way you can become a phenomenal hunter is to be a guide right. or an outfitter. There's lots of, there's lots right. of other ways, but I think there's, you know, I think there's value in just like watching what other people, you know, watching what works for other people and, and really being analytical about it and being like, okay, what are they doing that actually works? Like what part of what they're doing is making the big difference. And to me, at least my approach to, you know, outfitting and, you know, observing that data set, that's what I always thought, like, okay, what's making, you know, this subset of hunters way better. And how is that going to, you know, in some ways it's selfish, right? Robbie, like a lot Mm -hmm. of it was like, how, how am I going to make myself a better hunter? Oh, sure. And then, and then hopefully some of that, is what I'm trying to, you know, get through in all my content is like, what did I observe the best folks doing? Cause the way, the way I would put it is <clears throat> I, I mean, I had guides that are way better hunters than me, Robbie. Like mm-hmm. I, I, the, the only difference I think, or maybe the slight advantage I have over them is that I could observe what they were doing from like a, from a distance and mm-hmm. kind of figure out what they're doing. Like I had guides that are, that are, you know, their success rate would be four or five, six, 10 X. What another, what a, you know, what a, you know, do it yourself hunter in X unit would be, but they, they might even have a hard time explaining why they were so much more successful. So I think, you know, just being able to observe from a distance that I was, I've been able to gather up some things and kind of document them that, uh, that really made the difference for folks. So, so that's why I tried to focus on it. I guess it's like a very nerdy approach to it, you know, Robbie, but, uh, um, I, yeah, but, I do think works. there's some value. Yeah, sure. It, it, it works. And it's what I kind of picked up on, on some of your content was, you know, he's got an extensive background in this, or he wouldn't be able to talk about it in the way that he's talking about it. You can, you can feel what's real when you can feel if, if somebody's really been there and really done it. And, and that, so that's what I wanted to point out to the listeners of, you know, why would you want to listen to a couple of outfitters banter back and forth? And it's just because our sample size is huge. We've got to observe a lot of behavior, a lot of, a lot of different situations over years. And, um, you know, and, and it's helped me become a better hunter as well. And um, so besides that, we're going to talk a little bit about, about outfitting, what you can take away from it, tips on, on booking an outfitter. And um, uh, because Cliff spent, 
uh, uh, you know, at least 11 years and really m much of your life in some of the best big deer country in the United States. Uh, I want to talk about that a little bit and some of your experience in moving from, I mean, in, in, the, in Colorado, we call it second season, third season, fourth season, and the rest of the West, we call it late October seasons into early November into mid into late November, somewhere in there. And I want to talk about those just a little bit too, for the listeners, because I know guys are getting ready to apply for tags and, you know, when should I hunt? How should I hunt? Stuff like that. Um, but back to the outfitter stuff, uh, Cliff, you know, you, when you were talking about, you get a chance to, you know, work with some excellent hunters. When I first started my outfitting business, I didn't, in Idaho, you have to be a licensed outfitter, even to operate on private land. And so I decided early on to, to go the private land route route with outfitting, um, just, just leasing, uh, ranches that weren't accessible to hunters, uh, for, you know, for various reasons, we've got, you know, people around here that don't like hunting kind of like a lot of places or, or it's not so much, they don't like it, but they didn't want to manage it, you know, cause sure. you're, you're a bit, a landowner with a big tract of land, you know, your phone's ringing all the time. You got people trespassing and, you know, you gave, you gave the, the postmaster, a. uh, permission to come on the ranch and he shows up with seven of his buddies. I mean, they're just dealing with that stuff all the time. And so, so I decided to go that route because a lot of those guys are just looking for somebody to manage all those problems for them. And, and, and then I could have exclusive access to the ground. I wouldn't have to compete with the, uh, with, with the public. And so when, when I first went that route, I, I didn't have an outfitter's license. So all I could offer was trespass fee hunting by Idaho law. And what I learned in that I did that for about, I think, eight or nine years, and, and it was very successful. It was very profitable. Um, I, I learned there was a lot of guys out there that really don't need an outfitter. They're just looking for a good place to hunt. Like they, they know to hunt. And so what I was trying to get across to listeners is don't, don't just throw everybody in a bucket that, oh, because they're with an outfitter that, you know, they don't really know what they're doing. You know, they probably can't shoot all that well, you know, all, all, all the stereotypes that we put on people that go with outfitters. And I, I found at least when I was in the trespass fee business, that, that, that was kind of a fallacy. A lot of these guys were really good hunters. Um, sure. what, what type of hunter were, were you getting coming? through your business because the way i understand your business like you did some drop camp stuff that was probably more the diy guys but then you also had uh you know one-on-one -on -one or your, your small group hunting is that how you guys did it yeah so we did kind of the spectrum from all you know all the way from you know do it i mean well in the very beginning i even did stuff where i just did logistics for do-it-yourself hunters like packing guys in packing meat out for them we did a fair amount, fair amount of that when I was just kind of crawling into the business. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, but by the end of, you know, my, the end of my years outfitting, we were doing everything from drop camps, which is, you know, really, really that's a do it yourself type of hunt where we're just providing logistics, the camp and, and that kind of, that kind of service. And then we did, we did one-on-one, -on -one, um, you know, hunts on the other end of the spectrum. We did them, we did some guided hunts from wall tent camps. They were remote. We did some guided hunts from a lodge. I had a couple small private ranches leased, you know, so I did the whole spectrum of, uh, gotcha. of, of hunt type. Now on your kind of what you're talking about, Robbie, the type, the types of hunters that, uh, that we, that we guided. And I think you, you hit it on the nail on the head, man. Some of the, probably the worst hunters I've ever been around were people I guided, but mm -hmm. at the same time, the 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 best hunters hands down were also guys that i guided mm -hmm. um so you get a wide spectrum and i think you're right and this kind of comes back to just just some people you know people who have 
you know, they got, you, sometimes you'll find an individual where they're, they're in good enough physical shape and they've got, they're successful in business or however they got, they somehow they ended up with some disposable income and they have some time and they do a lot of hunting and they're able to iterate on their hunting a lot. A lot of those guys go on guided hunts for just the efficiency of it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like they want to, like in, in the case of what you were offering, they probably just want, they don't want to, you know, spend a lot of time scouting different areas and, and eating up a lot of their time. That way they want to know that they're going to a pretty good place where they don't have to worry about other hunting pressure, these sort of things. And they're going to get exposure, exposure to, you know, to mule deer. So they're going to start learning quickly and they kind of, they can use that as to kind of shortcut where they want to focus on, on a species and where they want to learn and become a better hunter. And so there's a lot of folks that are awesome hunters because, you know, the guided part of it is just about being efficient and getting up the learning curve, you know, and then there's, yep. and then there's guys that go on guided hunts because they just really need help. They're beginners, you mm -hmm. know, that sort of thing. So, so it's a, it's a whole spectrum. And I, you pointed out something that, um, and it's, it's funny cause I'm almost like, I'm almost like sensitive to talking about it. Cause I always feel like there's sometimes in the industry, there's some animosity towards like, you know, between do it yourself folks and guy and, you know, guys that go on guided hunts. And I don't, I don't think there should be at all. No. As a matter of fact, I mean, I personally think that, I mean, in the other, that's the other thing. I mean, I've guided folks that are, you know, on the, one percent of the one percent one percent uh you know wealth scale yep. who you know you guide them and then you know a month later you're talking to them and they're doing you know a do-it-yourself sitka blacktail hunt with their blow with their bow in alaska it's not like they you know a lot of them will do all the whole spectrum of hunting it's just this is just part of what they do you know and, and it's a good way to i mean if you can figure out little economical ways to do it even if you don't have a ton of money, you know, going on guided hunts or trespass stuff or whatever. I mean, don't, don't shun it. Cause there's some pretty cool opportunities to, to gain a bunch of knowledge, you know, where you, that you might not be getting in other areas. And I hate, I hate to say it cause I actually feel like this right now, you know, Robbie, and, and we'll, we'll focus on mule deer, but this will be one little, little caveat in archery elk. Like right now, you know, over-the-counter archery hunting in Colorado, it's not like it was 15 years ago. And mm -hmm. if you if you really want to maximize, like, exposure to calling setups, man, mm -hmm. if you can, you know, every three or four years, you can somehow, you know, get in, uh, you know, a, a trust, you know, a private land archery hunt or something like that where you're exposed to elk a whole lot more, you know, mm -hmm. during the rut. Mm -hmm. I, there's no doubt in my mind that you'll climb up that that calling lear learning curve quicker than you would if you're just hunting over the counter stuff. Oh that, yeah, does that for make sure. sense? Yeah, you bet. And 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 you know that's kind of, kind of what I want to talk about this stuff today because you know that's I don't I don't look as at, at the outfitted world and the DI world as 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 two separate entities. I, there's overlap in there. And some of the best hunters I know take advantage of that overlap. And, uh, you know, with, with like, you know, they do both. What, what you just said is a lot of these guys, as I got into, after nine years, I, I got my license. And so then I could take guys self-guided, but then I found I had to, I had to be more selective on who I took because I just, 
I didn't have the mental capacity to really help a brand new beginner um, or maybe even somebody that didn't really have a deep love for hunting. You know, maybe they were there. It was kind of more of a party and stuff. But sure. I, I still I still I still found that that some of these these DIY or excuse me, these these hunters that were coming with me for one on one guiding. That was just because of the opportunity that we offered. And, yeah, he may be off on another uh, elk. hunt. And by the way, these ranches are primarily elk, believe it or not, even though I'm a mule deer guy, elk pays the bills around you. here. Um, they may be off on a, on another tag in New Mexico two weeks later, uh, and, and they're on their own. And, uh, but, 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 but I, I don't think it, it needs to be separate and, and, you know, running rock slide, you know, I, I see, I get a variety of hunters on there and sometimes I do, I see that animosity between groups and it's like, guys, we're all on, all in this together. I mean, you know, they, it's, it's, it, it's all hunting and it, it's usually the DIY guys, you know, throwing darts at the, at the, at the outfitted guys. But when those DIY guys suddenly get enough money to go outfitted, you know, suddenly they're not, they're not, they don't not thinking it's so bad. So (laughs) anyways, uh, uh, back to what you said, your, uh, your example of archery elk is, is yeah, if you can access, you know, higher quality opportunities, whether that's, you know, on private land with greater densities of animals or going with an outfitter that really knows their area. And, and most of them do. I've kind of learned one, you know, when I was younger, you know, I was kind of the same thing. Oh, stinking outfitters, man. I hate it. You know, why are they here and everything? You know, I just kind of learned to avoid them because they were the best hunters in the area. Uh, they, they had the logistics down. They knew where to camp. They knew what time to, to be where, you know, they, you couldn't really compete with those guys if they were a good outfitter. It didn't matter how good of a hunter you were. And so I, I, you know, I learned early on to avoid those areas in Idaho, we have permitted outfitting areas and they're, they're, they can't go outside of those boundaries. It may be a unit or part of a unit. Um, and so I, I learned early on, and, and this is a tip for anybody that's hunting Idaho that wants to avoid outfitters, just contact your outfitters and, and guides board. You know, this is public knowledge on where these guys operate. And I'm not saying never operate in their areas, but, but don't roll into an outfitting area and think that you're, you're, you're a great hunter, 30 years of experience, and you're just going to walk all over these guys. No, I, I, I found it's pretty hard to compete with them. Um, Cliff, did you have a lot of overlap? I know the flat tops is a huge wilderness area. Did you have a lot of overlap with DIY guys coming in and trying to do it on their own? You know what I would say, Robbie, is is we did, but not to the extent that most people think we think we would have. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and so most of the areas that I like that I you know all, all my horseback and wall tent type outfitting were, were in they were areas where tag availability is very high, right? You know, you yep, got, exactly. you're talking about really mm-hmm. remote areas where probably, you know, the challenge with those areas is really the dispersion of hunters, right? What yep. happens is you get concentrated spots. Mm-hmm. And so, and I, and I would say that as a recommendation to people, like when you're researching units, you know, online or, you know, on rock slide or whatever, and you're getting general information about units, you have to take it with a grain of salt because, you know, how many hunters are in a unit, that's really the perspective of the person who's writing whatever you're reading. And mm-hmm. they could be in one little section of X unit and, you know, <laughs> 60% of the unit had, was barren of hunters, but like, you know, 80% of the hunters in the unit were within that six, you know, four or five square mile radius of where they were at. And so you have... You have that challenge. So we had hot spots, you know what I mean? And I will say, particularly if they were hot spots 
that were that took some effort to get into where we did overlap with do-it-yourself hunters they were generally good hunting spots too to be honest robbie like if i was if i was competing with do-it-yourself hunters who were working hard they were in spots that they had some knowledge you know Mm -hmm. and a lot of you know it's it's funny because what i would say and it gets back to you know uh, your thoughts on competing with outfitters a lot of the public that I really kind of competed with and I use that loosely I was never like I always try to keep like a cordial relationship with the public I mean just for sure so remote so remote up there but uh you know also just to be a decent human being but a lot of the people that I interacted with were people that I interacted with year over year over year and some of them had been hunting areas up there for longer than I had been outfitting like families Mm -hmm. who had like traditional camps so there's some competition there. Um, what I would say it just as a general chunk of advice, if you're, if you know, you're going into areas that are heavily outfitted in, in Colorado, the areas that are heavily outfitted for the most part, they're the areas that have this dynamic, right? They have a lot of tag availability and there's really a, a hunter dispersion issue and so the outfitters are in these areas and the the concept is to help with that, you know, dispersion of, of hunters within these wilderness units or, or remote units. One of my recommendations would be is don't, don't overlook from like the road that, that, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry guys, I'm getting over a cold, but don't overlook that, that country that's a half mile from the road to like four miles from the road. And obviously mm-hmm. that's going to depend a little bit on the train, but you know, there's, there's a band of, there's a band of, of landscape there in these type of areas that usually doesn't see a ton of outfitting pressure. And so, you know, you can go into wilderness areas in in Colorado and you can hike your butt off and get into the back of basins and run into wall tent camps. You know what I mean? Yep. Where you actually went through a fair amount of country that's very huntable and, you know, there's no reason why you couldn't have a great hunt in there. And a lot of times there's just kind of this, this, I call it like the kind of non outfitted uh, band of terrain. And a lot of people, and I'm, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of folks on rock slide where this, where this discussion comes up, they want to get as deep as possible. Right. And I, and I understand that. And they, and they kind of, they, they, they kind of look down upon like that, like one mile in type Mm -hmm. of stuff. And man, like I just, well, for one thing, you know, one mile or two miles with a backpack, particularly if you're elk hunting, like that's it's not easy, no. you know, in a lot of this terrain. Like it's pretty, pretty brutal, you yeah. know, just to pack a bull out. If you gotta go, if you gotta go up and down two ridges with an elk, I don't I mean if it's two miles, like I'm good with that. That's kind of that's a lot. But anyways, my my concept is is uh my thought is just kind of focus on that a little bit and you 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 might find some pretty good spots. Yeah, I, I I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like, you know, hunting has changed over the last 25 years. You know, in 1985, it was all about, you know, the furthest back, highest peak. Um, that's kind of played out now. And if, you know, if, if there's if there's good hunting there um, and, and, and it's kind of a main area, that's where your pressure is going to be, outfitted or not. I mean, there's a lot of good DIY hunters. About the only t- units that are not going to be that way are going to be ones with very low tag numbers. But then that typically attracts the most 
motivated hunter as well. That's a different set of challenges. But a lot of these places where tags are readily available, you know, their outfitters are ample. There's still these pockets, and they're sometimes they're significantly large places where there's hardly any hunting pressure compared to, you know, snob Hill where everybody else is going. And you said something a minute ago about the research that you gotta, you gotta take it all with a grain of salt. If you're reading a lot about it, a lot about a unit or a part of a unit, so is everybody else. That's why I'm real cautious about needle and biologists for spots, because I worked in a fishing game office during oh, yeah. my internship and I could listen to those guys on the phone and, you know, there's only a, a few places per unit they can send people. And, you know, I, I remember listening to one biologist sending people just to the, the same place. And he's like, well, they're asking the same questions, you know, and it, it, they're all going to end up in the same place. So that's where you got to be, be really careful. And, uh, but I, I think as, as hunters disperse into these, these places, like now everything's about the back country, all that other stuff, it has opened up other country that, that doesn't have as lot, a lot of hunting pressure. And um, I was chasing a mule deer last year in a place that was really only about a mile off of the road. Um, I didn't see anybody there, at least when I was there, I'm sure it gets pressure. Um, sure. yet, you know, some of the other places that are really popular, you know, high Alpine, beautiful stuff. Oh my goodness. You, you, you cannot be alone. You cannot be alone in those places. And so, you know, getting off the track of just outfitters, that's just hunters in general as, 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 as they, as they research. And I, I have a joke with all my friends, you know, that I, that, that are buck hunters that we all end up in the same place. And they're like, you're right. We do. We all end up the same place. And, and so, you, you know, you got, you got to think past that. So anyways, um, on the, on the outfitter, the whole thing is, is, you know, you, you booked hunters for years and I don't think anybody that has not been an outfitter can understand, you know, the pressure on a guy who's honest to, to, book hunts. I mean, you, we started the podcast off with that, that, you know, it's, we're selling, we're selling something that's not even guaranteed you're going to get it. You know, you're, you're going to lay down a lot of money and, 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 and for various reasons, we may not be able to deliver on the product. Um, but for an honest outfitter, when, when guys are, you know, really needling us and, you know, you know, wanting to book, wanting to make sure they're successful, that's all fine. That's what we do. But do, do you have any tips on guys, you know, hiring an outfitter, you know, what, what to look for, you know, uh, what, what would you, what would you say to people that are, that are looking to get a great experience uh, uh, from an outfitter? What do they look for? Yeah. I mean, I think so. To me, the whole the whole booking thing and outfitting, and it, and it took me a, a few years to figure this out. So, so I kept my my own where where I could keep my own personal stress level low, and then also make sure people were happy and had the right expectations. Was just that you know just managing expectations, mm -hmm. and so that's easy to say, but I think there's there's more detail to it. And what what I would say with outfitting, you know, in in the from the hunter's perspective, is you need to know that it's good to know the average experience, but what's way more useful is for you to know the variable, the variability in the experience. You know what I mean, Robbie? So I can, you know, I can tell you, you know, okay, third season deer hunting out of this camp, this is average, right? And, yeah. and it's going to look pretty good for the type of, for the type of opportunity. If I, if by the last few years, of me outfitting, if I only told people averages, like, look, here's some pictures from that camp, you know, this is a, an average year. Okay. 
everybody would be like, well, this value, this is like ridiculous how cheap he's charging for this. Right. Uh, well, yeah. I always would, I, I realized that, Hey, it's, this is what an average hunt looks like, but you're probably not going to get an average hunt. What you're going to get is a hunt like that's phenomenal world-class, or I could have a week that was horrible hunting. You yeah. know what I mean? That you're basically in a wall tent camp, just camping because yeah. the conditions are not right. And so obviously that's specific, that's in some ways specific to the type of hunting I was doing that, but that's pretty universal to these heavily hunted wilderness areas. The understanding the variability is huge for a hunter from a hunter's perspective to make sure that they're happy and they don't feel like they're getting hosed. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so what I would recommend, like if you're going to talk to references or, you know, you're talking to the outfitter themselves, I think most outfitters, if you ask them the right questions and a lot of them are forthright with it, if they've been in the game very long, you're, they're going to be honest with you. I, I, I do think that most outfitters are honest. Yeah. There's some bad eggs, you know, but if you write, if you ask the right questions to them, I think they'll describe this variability to you. And then if you talk to references that they give you, the in my mind, re, the references, the best references are somebody who's hunted with an outfitter for a few years and they've seen it at its worst and they've seen it at its best. Yeah. Because then they can give the person that that range of what they potentially potentially um can have and so it's weird right because and this is man i could talk about it for like three hours robbie because this like made my brain want to explode while running this type of business because i wanted people to be happy man mm -hmm. but if 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 they don't understand this concept of how much you know variability there is and how truly dependent the hunting can be on conditions it's very hard to keep them happy and i think yes you know, some people, you know, a lot of people who have been exposed to this type of hunting, they'll understand that. But even if you're an outdoorsman who, you know, you've done a bunch of fishing and maybe you've done a lot of hunting in other types of, you know, landscapes and places where uh, wildlife doesn't move as much and really the density of wildlife is much higher. Mm -hmm. You don't, you really may not understand what true variability in hunting is. And so for me, you got to get a grip around that. I think that's probably. a great, great point. And that's why I wanted to ask you this, because, you know, we just for the listeners, we didn't talk off air about any of this stuff. And I, and I had a feeling that's what he was going to say, because as an outfitter, when, when I was younger, it, it, it was with, without even being dishonest, it was really easy to, to overpromise something and, and not even intend to do it. And what I mean by that, when when I get a hunter that's really pushing me, like, you know, what kind, what's, what's your best animals? You know, what are you seeing? You know, well, if I, if I've been on a property for, you know, five, 10 years, well, you know, I'm going to have this filter of, oh yeah, well, we saw a 180 over here, a 190 over there, you know, and, you know, Fred shot a, a 170 over there, you know, I'm going to have all those experiences, but what you're not asking about and what, what Cliff brought up is the, the average experience. Well, but, it took maybe a hundred days to lay out those, to, to find those three or four animals, you know? And, and so I find when hunters are just, they're so paranoid. This is really what it gets down to. They're so paranoid about, 
getting their their money's worth that they they can push an outfitter into over promising something and we don't even mean to and as i got more experienced with it i kind of learned to really go toe to toe with those guys when they were really pushing me on you know well you know what what's going to happen what about this day what if we do this and i'm like you know what i don't know if you're going to be happy with with coming with what we're doing because you're 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 talking about so many things that i can't control and 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 one of the best things i ever did cliff is like like every outfitter i had a website and you know and i would have the testimonials on there of you know the guys that that that, that did great um, I started putting the guys on there that didn't do so great. And even some of the mad customers, I started putting them on there. And, and some of it was just out of humor. But man, I got yeah. such a response from guys that would like, man, I can't believe that you're putting on there that this guy was mad that he didn't see any deer. And I'm like, well, yeah. because that's part of the average experience. And I want people to understand, <laughs> you can give me as much money as you want. I can't pull a <laughs> rabbit out of a hat. You know, this is, this, it is hunting. And, and all the, you know, most of the, clients that want to go guiding that's the first thing they say i understand it's hunting they all know that however they can still go into these 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 operations with with false expectations that in my mind they've kind of created themselves but if the outfitter doesn't tamp it down a little bit and say whoa whoa wait a minute you could still get skunked here in fact, you could get really right. skunked. You know, if the outfitter doesn't do that, you're, you're you're creating false expectations as an outfitter and you don't even mean to. The Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. It's the exclusive app of many of the Rockslide staff, including myself. Some of the features of the Onyx Hunt app are nationwide public and private land boundaries, topographic and 3D maps, track your route, location, and elevation profile, waypoints, lines, and area shapes, save maps for offline use, and create custom map layers. While many of the competitors have similar features, I find one of the biggest benefits in using the Onyx Hunt app is that my friends have it. Nothing more painful than trying to share a waypoint with someone who doesn't have the app. Another thing I've noticed with Onyx, it's pretty much glitch free. Once you learn how to use the app, you will experience very few, if any, glitches in the app. We find on the Rockslide forum, the guys that are having glitches with Onyx or any of the apps, they just don't know how to use it. Once you learn how to use Onyx, it will be there for you. Some of the member benefits you get with being with Onyx are top rut draws. They just added that in 2023. Top Rut provides some of the most comprehensive draw odds information in the industry. Onyx is also offering constant upgrades like track trim. When they released that last summer, it really cleaned up my app because I was the guy that would go back to camp with my app on and walk around camp for two hours. And then when I would notice my track, it had these big scribble lines in it. Now you can trim that off. They're constantly offering similar upgrades. So if you're ready to make the jump, Head over to onxmaps.com, use the Rockcast promo code ROCKCAST, R-O-K-C-A-S-T, save yourself 20%. Yeah, and I think, I think this comes down to, you know, particularly in the spectrum of spending money. And this applies to outfitted stuff and do-it-yourself stuff. Because I've run into this, you know, just trying to help do-it-yourself guys who are going out, you know, they're going out west for their first first do-it-yourself archery elk hunt right well and they're spending a bunch of money even not going outfitted to go do that trip yeah. and mm -hmm. so i find that they run into the same thing there's this tendency when we're spending money and time 
to try to take all the risk out of it, at least psychologically. Right. You know what I mean, Robert? Yep, like yep, they yep. want to know in the in the telltale sign is when somebody says, I just I just want to kill a nice four like 140 inch mule deer is <laughs> fine with me, or 150 inch <laughs> mule deer is fine with me. And it's like I, I get what you're trying to do because you you wanna you wanna suck all the risk out of what you're doing and feel like here's the plan, you know boom, boom, boom. It's all mechanical. If I do this right, if I get the gear right, and then I get the location right, then I'm going to go there and I want to be guaranteed this opportunity. And I'm okay with just an average deer or slightly below average deer. Well, that's not how hunting works. At least this type of hunting works. Right. And so you kind of got to get over that right now. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to get over, like I always tell folks, like you, you might get lucky and you might be happy and it works out that way. But if you kind of want to stick to this, you got to get over that this doesn't fit like this is not, you know, a McDonald's hamburger that comes out the same every time. And, it, yep. you know, that's for do it yourself guys or guided guys. Mm -hmm. This type of hunting, like you got to, this is how it goes. You know, like you, you've got to deal with that variability. I know it's not fun, but you have to get your mind around that's how it is. And back to our original discussion, Robbie, about you kind of asked me you know, what the guided folks, um, that I, you know, what they, what they were like as hunters, the best hunters that I know understand this concept very well. Like yes. if, if they're on a mission to kill a 200 inch, you know, you know, net typical mule deer, they know that that may be a five-year endeavor, or that may be a 10-year endeavor with a lot of hunting and a lot of money, a lot mm -hmm. of money involved. Right. Mm -hmm. And they're, and they've come to the understanding that that's what it is. And this is like a serious mission. And then when they make it happen, they under like they understand what went into it, you know, and it's, yeah. it's a weird perspective. And, and it's I'm not you know, I'm not trying to make it negative or that, hey, like you should lower your expectations. I just think you should understand like what it is. And a lot of times when I see when I see these folks that like, you know, that accomplish that, you also have a different perspective. You're like that. Okay, it could have been luck, but most likely it was persistence in a pile of work, you know. Yeah, and even going outfitted, you 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 have to have that persistence and it and it in a one seven day outfitted hunt one on one in a great area, you know, you, you may not even be thinking about persistence. You're thinking about, well, they got the logistics worked out. I've talked to all the references, you know, they killed this animal, this animal, this animal. But you, you may have to go several years, three or four years to really get the kind of experience that you've built up in your mind. And, and Cliff, that's one reason I haven't gone to Mexico to hunt mule deer. I, I could probably afford it, but what I've learned in, in really listening to the guys that go and everything and be, being an outfitter, that's why I wanted to talk about this on this podcast. I got sucked into that a little bit too, researching hunts that, man, this ranch is really produced and, you know, 60% of the guys got a crack at a 30 inch buck and da, da, da. well, that's what you focus on, but well, 40% of the guys got spanked and, and, right. and the guys that I've talked to that, that, that have been going, it, it's like, you, you kind of almost have to have a two or three, maybe four year plan 
for Mexico. So now yeah. something that was 15,000 bucks is, you know, 60,000 bucks, you know, yeah, if, yeah. if if you're really thinking, Hey man, you know, 210 or bust, you know, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and, oh yeah. And even though I'd be happy with a 180, would I really, you know, I mean, yeah, yeah. that kind of money, would I really, yeah. I, you know? So yeah, you, you laid out some, just some golden stuff there, there Cliff. So for anybody that's following this podcast, j- just know I, I'm with Cliff. I think if an outfitter has been in business very long at all, he has to be honest. We live in a very transparent world. Um, you know, they can't be getting away with shenanigans very long. Or it's going to end up on Rockslide, Bosite, Facebook, Instagram. I mean, you know, they they can't continue to run a dishonest business. But also know that outfitters are people too. And if and if you're really pushing an outfitter, you know, to, to you get me to the best area, and you know, like the tip is there for you. I mean, I've had guys do that. You know, they sometimes they act like I'm holding back a little bit. You know, like oh yeah, but really, you know what what would it take for your best? I'm like, hey, dude, I'm, I treat everybody the same. I'm giving you my best. But but if you're pushing an outfitter like that, you may get exactly what you deserve. You know, he may end up over promising something, even as an honest guy and not meaning to. And 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 the last thing I kind of learned, this was a group of hunters I had about eight years ago, Cliff. They were all pretty, pretty good buck hunters. They're probably in their 60s. And, you know, they just they looked at some of the pictures. They knew me. They knew I had taken some good bucks. You know, and again, I said most of our properties are elk hunting, but because we manage hunters, you know, we grow some pretty good bucks. Well, these guys. And it was a little bit my fault. They came into it with completely false expectations. Hey, we're hunting with Robbie Jennings. He's killed some good bucks. Man, he wouldn't lease a crappy property. You know, look at some of these bucks that he that, that, that he's killed. I wasn't careful about saying, yeah, but remember, guys, there was there was a lot of guys that didn't get that kind of buck. And you know, you're hunting in, in middle of October, and if the weather comes off hot and dry, you know, it can be really hard. And and those guys left very disappointed. You know, they were still cool to me. They 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 didn't have. You know anything against me? I hadn't lied to him, but but that was when I learned that I got to start saying, "Hey guys, it's it's still really hard. It doesn't matter that you know we killed a 180 here last year. It doesn't even matter. You know that 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 can just totally be luck, even when we do all the right things. And and and, and I, I know you're an outfitter, Cliff, because you you've said it several times. You had to learn to manage your stress level. That's what I'm talking about. You have to kind of learn to manage that because you know we don't want people mad at us. You know we we got a reputation. You know we 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 want to we 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 want people to come and, and enjoy their experience. And, and, and so I did, I, I, I think a lot of people are excited or, or surprised when they get a hold of me. Now I talk the hunting down a little bit. I always kind of put that in there now, because if I don't, I've learned that, that, that guys that haven't done this a lot, they, they create an experience that I can't deliver. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic, man. And, and to, to even extend on it, Robbie, like, you know, I had, I mean, I dealt with hundreds and hundreds of hunters over my careers and mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. so i dealt with some upset hunters that felt like i had hosed them yep. and there has been you know it's a very small percentage but i had that just because of the numbers and yep. i cannot tell you you know basically my approach in those situations is i would get them on the phone and be like well i don't want you to be unhappy but i need to know where where i lied to you or where i misre- misrepresented and mm-hmm. usually, usually in a, you know, in some of these discussions would be like an hour long phone call. Yep. Usually we would flesh it out. Like, uh-huh. and there really wasn't a time that I lied to them, but <laughs> maybe they, a lot of the times they felt that there was something left out. And in, in my heart of heart, I don't think that I ever did that intentionally, but you know, that that's what needs to be found out when you're trying to, you know, find where to hunt, who to go with make sure you ask all those questions. Cause after the fact, 
you don't want to be on an hour long phone call with the outfitter and the outfitter is just as frustrated as you are because he doesn't know where he's lied or, 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 you know, screwed you over. And he wants to know that, you know? Um, and so that's kind of, kind of my thought on it is it's, it's hard, man. It's one of the hard, I mean, for anybody who wants to get into the business, if you, it, and it's may sound petty, but this was one of the hardest parts of the business. I mean, I can freeze my ass off up in the mountains in the dark, cutting up a frozen mule deer and trying to get it on a, you know, a couple mules and, you know, in the pitch black or whatever, yeah. and, and get home at one in the morning. That's way easier than dealing with somebody who's upset. And I don't understand why. There you go, buddy. That's why I brought it up. I knew I knew you would have this kind of experience having been in the outfitting industry for for 11 years. And that's, you know, that's any reputable outfitter, any good outfitter is going to feel the same way because, you know, we're we're trying to manage expectations. So whether you go outfitted or not or DIY, because I see this with DIY hunters, I've done it to myself. Just what I said, the problem arises when you create expectations or experiences in your head that really are on the off the bell curve they're, they're way out there that's that's like the one in 20 year experience that you've got in your mind and we all do it we all most of us leave an area um uh, more disappointed than what we showed up in whether we're diy or outfitter or not that's just how it is and so you've got to manage your expectations as a diy hunter as an outfitted hunter and do as much research as you can but when you get there when when it's opening day man just just roll the dice that's all you're doing just get out there do your best and and, and roll with it and and the longer you do it i think you'll find it whether you're guided or diy it's conditions most of the time it's conditions um and you know and luck that are going to that are going to allow you to close the deal. And that's what I mean about not being able to, uh, the best outfitter in the world can't pull a rabbit out of a hat. They, they can't do anything about, you know, conditions and things like that, luck, things like that. But if you're persistent and, um, and, and, and you got to get to it attitude, uh, you're going to prevail in, in, in the long run. You may have to go back. You're probably going to have to go back. I almost guarantee you that. And um, to get the experience that you're looking for. But to me, Cliff, that's what's attractive about hunting. That's the overcoming part of hunting. That's that's why oh, yeah. to me per- persistence is more important than patience. All right, you got to persist. Persist has that element of adversity in it, and uh, you know where patience is. Well, I'm just going to wait. Well, okay, that may work, but you may wait on the wrong side of the hill for ten years, and a buck never walks by. Um, you could right. be the most patient guy in the unit. You know, you could be. You know, patience can work against you, but being persistence, you know, overcoming that 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 very that um adversity that's going to come on an outfitted hunt, even with the very best outfitter on a DIY hunt. Heck, the some of my favorite places to hunt where they've been consistent producers. I still have. Man, I've, I've some of these places, Cliff. I've hunted fifty days without pulling a trigger, yet I still consider yeah. them good. You know, sure. and and, yeah. and yet I know guys that when they end up in those same places, they're like, "Wow, I'm never going back there." Well, you're not managing that expectation. I don't know what you're looking for, but you're you're not going to find it. You know, here, you know, and and money, um, you know, high outfitted hunts and everything. That's not necessarily going to offset it either. So, yeah. Uh, well, anyways, and just in what you just said too, Robbie, like as a as more of a tactical advice, I think sometimes what happens is we. At the, we we devalue our local knowledge of an area that we're building up, right? Yep. And and we want to go somewhere else because it hasn't worked out, but we don't realize that the probability of this working out is is pretty good now that we have a lot of local local knowledge. Oh, I, I yeah. think that's kind of something that people people overlook a little bit. 
You bet. Hey, Cliff, the 30-inch buck I got last year was in an area that I've hunted three times in 20 years, and it is not because it's hard to draw. You can get it every year or every other year right around in there. Um, but it took 20 years to just for the schedule to line up. And a lot of it just got down to, I couldn't get a tag anywhere else. So, you know, I'll go over here to just this okay place, but I kind of know it. And I ended up getting a 30 inch buck there, but you know, I hunted, you know, two other seasons and, and, and man, I'm not even sure if I saw one. Um, I don't think I did. Um, I missed one one year, but it wasn't even as big as the one I got. But so, you know, that, that to me though, is still an exceptional hunt. I got a, big buck in just three times of trying in this area and yet i'm yeah. talking to a lot of guys who are like oh no that's ridiculous i mean my goodness we can do better than that and i'm like i can't I mean, <laughs> that's just i mean if, if, if i could get a, a 30 inch buck every three years because i haven't man i'm doing really good you know and that's yeah, yeah. collectively you know with with points and, and you know because you know i have points i've spent a lot of points on some units and then the, you know all the way down to diy crappy hunts you know because there's places i go to i won't go back i get it i figured that out in a year don't go there you know you got to average all those experiences and yeah, so yeah. anyways hopefully there's something there people can pull out for you know going outfit or going diy but you know manage your experiences just know human nature it's really easy to sit at the keyboard in january and come up with these great big big buck dreams and you know when when opening day hits, you know, a lot of that stuff does not pan out like we think it's going to, but, but but persistence is the great leveler. That's, that's, what's going to, going to help you win in the game. Yeah, no, I agree. Robbie. All right, dude. Now I know you've had a lot of experience hunting, uh, uh you know, kind of after the 20th of October, um, into you know, mid to late November. And uh, I wanted to give the listeners just any tips you have about, about hunting during that time. And I know, you know, you spent a lot of, a lot of time in, you know, just specific areas. So maybe it's just area specific, but tell me this, this is, this is how I'll ask it. Do you hunt the same in late October that you do in mid November for mule deer? Yeah. So <clears throat> for us, we, we didn't, and without, but I would say like I I'd extend it a little bit in front of that timeline, I guess, for my for my full perspective on it. For me, for sure, like the, the I mean, depending on the seasons, right? Like when second season started in, in Colorado, which is our first mule deer season. Yep. I mean, that like 15th to 20th of October to you know the 20 to the 25th, 26th, like that 10, 15 day period or whatever, however the seasons fill in it's it's so much harder to kill a deer during that period of time (laughs) in general um and i don't mean that like a little bit i mean like 10 times as hard you know it it, we we had a lot of so i guess to to kind of pound that in as a as an example we had a lot of camps that i would consider like my best deer camps and from the fifth like let's say we had a second season that was the 15th of October to the 20, you know, whatever the 22nd or whatever laid down in there. Right. Or the, you know, as the season and those guys would go and I'd have five guys in a camp and, you know, you talk to them after the hunt, maybe they killed, you know, one small buck or, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe a couple small deer and they didn't see very many deer and they were really more focused on, on elk hunting or whatever. And you ask them about how the mule deer are and there's like, ah, man, we didn't see anything. And then literally, the next week, you know, during that third season and, you know, mm-hmm. that falls maybe the last few days of October into November. Now it's even a little bit later, but it would be like night and day, 
you you know you'd have you know within five days you'd have four you know basically giant bucks dead in the camp yep. you know i'm not it, you know that was not uncommon to have that extreme difference just the the next week it, it hit the conditions just right now one thing i noticed and i learned this over time is all the areas and this went for the primary area <clears throat> that that we did all of our horseback stuff in and some other areas that i've been exposed to in kind of that you know that veil corridor up to the flat tops you know the the colorado river stuff there's a lot of elevation grade in those units you know robbie so yep i actually found that third to fourth it it became where it was kind of a question of you know which one of those seasons was going to be better because we we would get into situations in my forest service permits and in in the wilderness and the surrounding uh, forest service that higher elevation stuff if the the if the conditions were quote too good a lot of our deer would move past us so mm-hmm. fourth season like we could have a just a banger third season which is like you know like I said like basically the first week of November a few days in October into November. And then the fourth season, I'd be struggling, you know, mm-hmm. um, and some of that is logistics. Like I just didn't have, you know, low country that I could hunt, you know, mm-hmm. but what's crazy is I used to think there were a few years where I thought, man, all of our big bucks that we were hunting during third season, you know, last few days of October into early November, those deer are down on this private and these private guys, are they got to be butchered during fourth season you know, now that the snow pushed them down there, mm-hmm. but I started to develop relationships with some of those outfitters down there. And there's really just one or two guys that, that had huge, I mean, we're talking about guys that are leasing, you know, probably a, a accumulation of a hundred thousand plus acre of ranches in the bottom country huge. there. I talked, I talked to them and they'd be like, no, nah, dude, our, our deer hunting sucked, you know? Mm-hmm. And it turned out that sometimes those deer, Sometimes those deer get into the low country and then they like, it's almost like they beeline like across the landscape to somewhere they want to be. They're mm-hmm. not necessarily just at the bottom of your elevation grade. A lot of times they move down and then they, they go somewhere very far away, like, like maybe a couple units away. Yep. You know what I mean? Yep. So, uh, so it's interesting because it means that you have to have your timing, right? You know, once you get into that third, fourth season choice, but then you also kind of have to know the dynamic of like where they're coming through in certain periods of time and then where they end up in terms of like actual tactics. I mean, I would say in general, Robbie, during the third season, we focused on corridors that we knew we knew deer came through and we, we got where we had that figured out pretty good. Mm-hmm. um over it i mean you know it may have taken us three or four years really but we knew we basically knew during third season if you were sitting on certain rocks for a few days you're gonna kill pretty good deer you yep. know yep um and then fourth season i felt like you know then they'd be with it depend on the dates a little bit but they'd be rutting pretty hard a lot of times then i would focus on all the spots where we see like it's weird because in that area, you're always riding through the elevation grade. And it's like there's these little pockets of local does mm-hmm. that don't migrate. Yep. I, I don't I don't know the science behind this, but it'd be like, okay. It's everywhere. Turn, yeah, okay. So and, and and just so the listeners know, Robbie's got 
I'm sure you've got way more like breadth of experience across the different states, but I would find like I'm riding through country, riding through the elevation grade on my horses, going up to my high camps. And it'd be like, I do a little corner and I look back in there and there's like five does that just live in there year round in the Aspens. Right. Well, come November, now there's 15 does in there and there might be, there might be 10 spots like that that have a little chunk of local does and then more does show up. And then when those deer were really rutting hard, I would just go check all those spots I knew of. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how we'd pick up big deer. And that a lot of times at that time, admittedly, we would pick up deer that we'd never seen before. You're just big deer. I mean, you're just like looking at the same does that you basically know by name. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the, you look at these does, you've seen them so many times. You can tell by like the little tear in this one's ear yeah. or the way that like, you know, you got like names for them. Right. And then all of a sudden, like in the Aspens, you just see a, just a, beast of a buck that you've never seen heard of or knew was around just cruising through the Aspens with his nose down. Right. And then, you know, you do that. So that a lot of times fourth seasons, fourth season would end up like that. I guess I would say that fourth season for us, in, this is just generalizations, but it'd be a little, it'd be a little more luck, you know, like what would show up on these little pockets of those. Yeah, but the, what wasn't luck was you had an inventory of places, exact hunting places where you could go and you know, fill, fill in the gaps if I mess this up. But you'd be like, hey, we got to get up the canyon. We need to be there by this time. Let's check on those does. Bam, we're there. Hey, there's not a buck here. Hey, I know one more spot we can get over here. And, and, and you could efficiently cover those where somebody that doesn't know the area as well, they don't have the logistics down. Because to me, big mule deer hunting, it's all logistics. You know, they may get yeah. to that same spot, but, you know, now it's 1130 and it doesn't matter if it's the November, November 20th, you know, there's just not as much activity that time of day usually, you know, and, and maybe they mm-hmm. see those same does but you know cliff was there three hours before that buck was in there right at daylight there was no hot does or there was one and he took her and he's right on the back side of the ridge that you just don't happen to see and you're not going to walk over there because there's no there's no reason to the deer right here and so you know then you move up the canyon and by the time you get to the next place you know hey this is pretty good it's getting evening time you know and and they they should be out and those deer have already moved they moved 400 yards down the drainage they're down in the oaks you can't even see them and and you leave that just like wow there, there's just that's just not even worth going back to you know there's just nothing up there that's that same old does you know there, there, there's no bucks around them yet you know the best hunter in the unit just went through there that morning and he's back at camp planning hey i'm going to be back there tonight those those that, that was a good buck that was in there and those other deer there's there's good tracks around there and that's what i mean that like that's all the logistics of it and i would imagine that's why you guys did pretty well because you could rule out a lot of country not to spend time in am i, am I correct oh yeah yeah and you know the other thing robbie like if we're talking about you know deer that are really rutting hard mm-hmm. what, what what would we would find because I mean, we're talking about an area that doesn't have a lot of roads. If you're on foot or horseback, like it's kind of hard to jump from this ridge to, you know, the next train. Yeah, you're not efficient. Whatever. But one thing about <clears throat> those areas, if you know where your little pockets of does are, I cannot tell you how many times, like right at dark, you know, some, some buck that we were, you know, that the hunter I was guiding would love to harvest, you know, it was just in the Aspens. You know, and he's running does and the does are not having any of it. And we just can't get a shot. You know, mm-hmm. I, 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 you know, like they're in those, like the little, you know, 
uh, four inch diameter aspens and they just will yep. not stop. Yep. This happens a lot, like with rut and deer. And you're just like, ah, oh. like I remember one time this, he still brings it up to me because he's a guy I guided several times and he's a pretty good friend of mine. He's like, you remember that time where you were just like, I kept asking you like, what do you think about that one? And I'm like, dude, that's a, that's a behemoth deer. We just got to get him to stop. Yep. And he just would not stop with the aspens. But anyways, no this shot. would happen a lot. Gets dark, no shot. Go back in the morning, and the buck is just not on that pocket of does, right? Yep. Well, if you have the knowledge of the area, you're thinking, okay, this buck, he's he's on some pocket of doe, of some pocket of does, right? If mm-hmm. you know where the does on the next ridge live, you know where the does below live. Go check those spots because some, you know, they'll they'll haul butt across a landscape. And go down a drainage, up a drainage, and there'll be in another set of does that you know about. And it's like, there he is, you know. And you got to kind of know that or you're going to waste like days trying to find him again. Yeah, or you'll be the guy hitting me on Instagram saying, man, I was in Colorado around the 20th. They just weren't rutting, you know. Yeah, yeah. I don't think they rutted this year. And it's like, no, I tell people all the time, no, this is sex. <laughs> they are rutting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I promise you, even if you don't get to observe it, they are. Yeah, fawns rutting. are basically born at the same time every year. So, yeah, we know. So we know when it's happening. That's a great point. You know, we know when it's happening. And and um, and so but, but anyways, point well taken. You know, you know, if you know your area well and um, and and you can handle the logistics of moving easily um, and, and being in these places, your your odds are, are just going to go up. And so um, and, and for me, what I'd offer is, believe it or not, I probably glass more in second season than I do in third and fourth because of some of the reasons that 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 you mentioned. You know, if if, if, if it's late October, um you know, I know the bucks are mid to late October, you know, usually by the time you get around Halloween, they are actually moving. So let's just say a little bit before that. Um, I know they're pretty hunkered down. You know, I, I need to really pick a place apart and he's not going to move a lot. And I, I need, I, I can't just cover a lot of ground at that time of year. And plus typically, you know, uh, in, in mule deer, or, you know, precuspular, I think is what you, you, you call it. They're, they're up, they're up, up, up at the, Dawn and the dark, you know, that's when they're most, um, dawn and dusk, excuse me, when they're the most active. And so after that, it's a tough game, you know, it's hard to find them. And, and, um, so I'll actually glass an area longer where, you know, maybe third season or, you know, mid October, mid November somewhere, you know, I'm moving a little bit more actually, you know, if I, cause I'm like, I should be seeing them, you know, I'm not going to just camp out on one spot for, for three hours. You know, if I'm not seeing them, man, they could just be on the backside of that Ridge right there. There's cover over there. I need to get over there too. And so sometimes I, I change that up just a little bit and I'm not quite spending as much time in one area unless there's been something that's like, no, that big buck was here last night. He's, you know, right. I don't know where else he went. I'm going to, my odds are better just to, you know, just, just hunker down here for a, for a day or two and let's see if he shows back up. Sure. And, you know, Robbie, I have a question for you because I'm just curious, man, if it was specific to, you know, the the units around there that I hunted a whole lot. But I found that our deer, like we would have these years where it was dry, basically the whole rifle season. You know, it'd be dry all the way till, you know, late, late November. And yeah, then a lot start of years. Our snows. So that, you know, that happens. And uh, in those years, our elk would just stay way up in the high country but our deer would still move, you know, it's pretty, pretty consistently like the same, like, I don't know, like maybe like three to five day period, our deer would start trickling out. Did you find that was the norm in other, in other States you've hunted? 
for the most part. So when like 2021 in Colorado, I I don't remember a warmer, longer, dry season with 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 warm weather you know a lot of times third season can be still be really warm but you know you get a day or two of snow and you know things pick right up and you know 2021 it was just terrible it was that way the whole time but you know the unit i went to it was a new unit for me but the guy i was with knew it very well and um he's like you know what these deer are doing the same thing that they do every year even when there's a foot of snow and so what 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 i what i kind of surmised in my mind is that the deer you know they, they they can't handle the deep snow that like elk can and and you got to think about the time of year a big buck can handle deep snow and so just because you saw a big buck in chest deep snow you know mid-october that doesn't mean he's gonna be there in november because the does won't be there and in november he right. cares about the does he's following the does so to your point once once the once that time of year hits, most of the deer seem to move, start heading for you know lower elevations, friendlier locales. But it's the does and the fawns that are the 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 that I think are leading it out. Like they're the ones that are like, we're gonna go here. Well, you get past Halloween, the bucks they're breeding. This is sex, people. Yeah. They're gonna go where the does go. And so I've I've witnessed the same thing. There's been a few exceptions here and there, um, where you know, wow, there's there's still deer up here. This is amazing. There's does up up here you know and it's it's the rut you know the snow's deep but anytime the snow's kind of getting to 12 to 18 inches and it's past yeah, november it. 1st man i better see something that morning to keep me there because i'm moving i that's just too much and i may only need to go three quarters of a mile and 400 feet in elevation off the back side and i'm right back into the deer you know what i mean yeah but but yeah. but again the elk yeah they're living up there you know they've just got longer legs they 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 they'll migrate too there's no doubt but it's it's my experience has been like yours it's the deer typically are are gonna are gonna go first and it's not gonna be as weather dependent right like snow will push them early but dryness will is not gonna keep them later. I guess is what I, there experience. you go. It may spread you know it out I mean? a little bit, may, may, right. may, may turn it more into a trickle than a big push, but they're, they're still going to go. They're still going to go. And, you know, I've hunted units with no hunting pressure and, and nobody around November 1st, beautiful high country. And there ain't a deer to be found and a, yeah. a buck or a doe. And I know it's just the does have left. It's late enough. It's cold enough. The, the vegetation has changed. There's other things besides snow that, that, that pushes them, you know, as, as, as the plant types change and, and then the bucks, they just go with them. They, you know, they could be up there yeah. all alone, nobody even hunting them. And they're right down there by the campground where there's 14 camps, you know, like, what are you yeah. doing down there? You know, yeah. but that's just, they're, they're following the does. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, it's funny, uh, Robbie, I, I noticed for me, I, I don't have like statistical evidence, evidence of this, but it's, I'm sure it's the case just how much, how often I kind of observed it. For me in that third, fourth season, it regardless of the snow on the ground, if we would get cold snaps, just the day-to-day -day hunting would be would turn on. Like yes. it would be twice as good. You know, and you know how volatile your temps are in Colorado during that period of time. You have like a nice day, and then the next, you know, that night it gets crazy cold. You would almost guarantee that the hunting would be good in general, but it would also be good throughout the day. I ran into that a lot and I'm assuming it's just the metabolism of the deer keep them up, but 
um, that, that was kind of an indicator. One of those few things where I knew like, all right, tomorrow's going to be good because it's negative 15 tonight or whatever. Yep. Uh, yeah, I agree. Those are the mornings. I'm like, I have to be in an exact spot here, you know, cause the deer, yeah. the deer are going to be active. I need to be where the deer are. I can stay longer, you know, just, just going to be a better chance. And another one I've kind of noticed too, Cliff, that took a few years to sink in was after high wind days, even in, you know, warm weather, no snow, if we have a really high wind day and we're talking, you know, like a, an advisory is, is issued by the national yeah. weather service, whatever that is, you know, 30 mile or 40 mile an hour throughout the day, those deer hunker down they don't like that and the yeah. next day can be as good of hunting as it is after a giant snowstorm i've i've seen yeah, that i've seen the deer hungry. they're up they're up for hours they you just can't make a mistake you know it, it it's amazing so you know if, if if it's really windy i try to get into the little pockets where i've seen deer it's great for still hunting you know you can get away with a lot but i still haven't done as well as man just be out there the next morning even if it's 50 degrees those deer did not get to feed neat like they wanted to and and they will be out they may not stay out a long time but you know they're usually out in force have you seen yeah, that that makes sense you know i i, I haven't like correlated it to the wind but it's probably just because I, I'm just not, I'm not smart enough to figure that out yet. Cause your logic <laughs> makes a ton of sense, man. Well, go, go test it out, man. So, I mean, anything that makes them where they got to where they got to catch up on eating. I mean, that's yeah, for sure. And I noticed that with elk too, you know, mm -hmm. cold, cold. yeah, they really don't miss a meal. If they miss a meal, they'll catch up. They, yeah, they yeah. really will, you yeah. know, and, and, um, uh, you know, it took a lot of years of hunting to kind of figure that out, you know, that, that, you know, they're keyed in on that stuff and they're no different than us. That's why I talk about it's, it's sex and it's eating, you know, two of the biggest drivers in, in God's creation right there. And, yeah, yeah, and our elk what, and deer what, are experiencing that. Yeah. 99% of their problems are related to those two things. Yep. That's right. And if you can, if you can, you can figure a hack around those, you're probably going to do better. So, so, well, Hey man, I, so I wanted to end on this dude. When I very kind of first became aware of this, you know, Stanford educated outfitter in Colorado guiding hunters and everything. I'm like, oh, who is this guy? And dude, I, I know you were, you were guiding in some of the best Boone and Crockett country in the world. And so I always had my eyeball on it. Um, you guys killed a mega buck down there. I six, seven, eight years ago. Um, uh, um, and, and I remember thinking, wow, I, I would love to know the story behind this buck. You know, I'm always looking to do things on purpose, but I'm fully aware, you know, bucks can be taken by that. that that's, that's one thing that's interesting about buck hunting is, is, you know, that the amateur can win the Super Bowl. You know, the guy can just step out of his truck. There he is. You know, he just, he just made the top 10 in Boone and Crockett and, and the poor sucker that's, you know, been, been grinding it for 30 years, still doesn't even have a 190 typical. So do you know which buck I'm talking about? Yeah. So that was the biggest buck that was killed that, you know, was killed in my outfit by, by quite a bit. You know, we killed quite a few deer just because of the numbers of hunters that I took over the years. We killed quite a few deer from, you know, 175 to, you know, 200, like we killed a couple other deer that were right in that realm of like 195, 200. But that deer was like a deer that grossed like 235, right? A big, like big, crazy, non-typical deer. And uh, how wide was he? I got to ask. I'm a, I'm a width guy. Yeah, remember? man. So I, I, I have the score. I have the score sheet somewhere, but I, I remember scoring him and he's like 33, 34 inch, four inches wide. You know, and he just... had like a, but he had a big, like on one, one side of his main beam. 
and I have to, I should look, get, pull the picture up. So I'm describing this, but he had like a, like kind of a, like a, like a gnarly kind of rosebud that just stuck out like straight out. So uh -huh. it made his outside spread like an additional, like six or seven inches of what it really, you know, what kind of the frame was. Does that make sense, Robbie? So did the 33, 34 include that projection? Yeah, inclu it included that. You know, and just the way his antlers laid out, you know, he looked like he had all of that just on his frame, you know, but pictures can be deceiving. But I remember, no, my, I mean, width is only one part of the score. I just always ask about it. Dude, mm -hmm. he was a giant. That was a giant buck. I mean, it sounds like, I don't know if he netted, uh, did he net Boone and Crockett non-typical? You said he was in the 230s. Was that yeah, net he, or gross? He, he, he did. I'd have to pull up the score sheet for you and I can, <laughs> I can send it to you. The thing that's crazy about him, I, I have to say, Robbie, is unfortunate. So you get these big giant deer and a lot of times people take just phenomenal maybe to some extent like exaggerated pictures yeah the sure pictures that, the pictures that you've seen of this deer are not exaggerated at all i would say they're very poor pictures of the deer you know <laughs> what i mean even better. um <laughs> and, and so it's like it's it's kind of one of those things that i mean i regret not taking just like phenomenal pictures and the hunter himself he, ha he has a few great field pictures of the buck um he's, he's a fairly like private guy uh mm -hmm. but anyways um it, it, the pictures that you've seen, like there's one with my wife in the garage. It just looks like hilarious yeah. to me. But yeah, right. I was on the on, on the Bucks right side. Um, there was you know had like a projection there of three points. Mm -hmm. Um, but but anyways, uh, this the deer, the deer was way bigger in real life than the pictures. Is basically what I'm saying because he was like like ba like baby arm heavy, like all the way up the point, and it was like his his backs and stuff were all heavily bladed. Yep. I mean, he's just a huge, huge deer. So, I mean, everything about him, and I want to, I want to point this out to our listeners for those that maybe don't follow Boone and Crockett real close. So th if this is a net Boone and Crockett, non-typical, you know, Cliff, some, some years in the West, we only kill a couple of those in the entire West, you know, and, and I'm talking, I'm talking, you know, probably on the worst years, but on the best years, maybe just, a handful at most. I mean, I, just a handful. And if you take out the, you know, the really 25 point tags to, to draw, you know, the, you know, Ponsagant and stuff like that, it gets even lower. You know, it's, it, it could be, yeah. you know, if you just, you just looked at the average area that most guys could hunt once every three years, it, it could be zero, zero per year on net Boone and Crockett non-typicals. That is such a high mark to get over. And that, that's why I remembered that buck so well, even though I didn't know if he scored that, I kind of figured he did looking at that. So, you know, that's very rare air there that you can hunt an entire lifetime and not even see one of those bucks. Yeah. It was, he, and you know, not all of these big non-typicals have those huge, they, he, I mean, he really, in he really had a massive typical frame. And just mm -hmm. a bunch of crap on it. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. But I remember um, he had deep forks, deep forks. He had everything oh yeah. he needed. Yeah. And again, like the pictures don't show how deep his forks were because he was so heavy. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, yep. but uh, but yeah, the 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 story behind the buck. So I I, I I'll, this will be telling to your to your um your audience. So in this area, like, <laughs> excuse me, Robbie. Um, in this area like down on the winter range, but also up in, you know, up in the wilderness areas and that sort of thing. There are people who, who follow these bucks. You're just like a lot of places in Colorado. There's a huge group of guys that shed hunt 
to this day, I have not seen a picture of this buck. Mm -hmm. I have not seen a shed from this buck mm -hmm. um, from any of these folks. So, and before he was killed, I did not know he was there. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yep. yep. Now, having said that, where, you know, where, where he was killed, he was killed on kind of a main corridor that at that point we had kind of figured out that a lot of deer came, came through and he actually was killed during second season um, oh, on really? that corridor, like almost like he was just a little, like a little early. Mm -hmm. um, but anyways, uh, do, do you remember the date? Man, it might, it was probably like, it was probably like October 25th or something. Okay, like the that. reason I, the reason I asked that is because not all second season is created equal in my mind. We talked about conditions today. If the conditions get cold and, you know, things like that, that to me, that can kick off the, the rut early. Um, you definitely, you know, deep, deep snow and they start their migration, pushing those bucks around those does, you know, for whatever reason. So I, I was just wondering, um, uh, you know, if he was, he, he potentially could have been rutting if it was as late as October 25th. I've seen, I've seen big bucks in the rut, right? Right around that date before it's rare but but i have seen it but but anyways continue on yeah and so i mean there there wasn't <clears throat> what i would say about it was so he he was we were not hunting him specifically we were just hunting like a known corridor yeah right and yeah. then what's kind of crazy about this and this is what happens you know back to the whole expectation thing once this deer was killed on that corridor yeah, like really started to focus in on it. You know what I mean, Robbie? Like yep, we started yep. to focus in on it. And I would say that, you know, 90% of the bigger deer that we killed through the rest of my years there were essentially on the same, same trail. Mm -hmm. And I actually mm -hmm. know of some, of a couple other well-known bucks, you know, that were killed by well-known people that were killed essentially on the same track. So it's weird and it could be completely anecdotal, but for some reason, bigger deer came, you know, came through this corridor in terms of the, the actual story of the hunter. It was basically like he was sitting in a spot where you could see, you know, you could, <clears throat> you could see where these deer move through on several trails, big open sagebrush deal. And this, this buck, he did come through with does, it, you know, I don't know that he was like chasing them, but right. he was you know, he was with those. So he's probably like thinking about it. Um, and, uh, he was killed on that corridor, just came out. He was actually with another buck that was, that was not as big as him, but big, like a mm -hmm. 200 inch type of deer. Oh my God. Um, and so, you know, that's the story of how he was killed. Nothing special about the specific story, but I learned that, okay, something, something is odd about this corridor. And I don't know what it is, Robbie, like, it's not very hard. It's not super hard to hunt other than it. I kind of tried to track it out. Like where are they going in the high country? Mm -hmm. And what I would find is there's certain areas in the high country. I would rarely glass up big, huge deer, but I would bump them in the timber. Like when I was like going into packing elk out, yep. you know, on October 10th, I'd be walking through the trees and just, I'd look up and, you know, I'd hear something bumping through the trees and I could just tell it wasn't an elk, but I could tell it was big and I'd look up and there. Oh, so there's a couple of these little pockets and I'm guessing these deer came out of that and because it just kind of made sense with the topography and they'd come down these tracks and there was kind of one area 
where they would get exposed and then they would be bomb they'd bomb down into private and then they could you know there were some low country where it's very easy for them to go north south wherever they were were wintering and the only thing i can think of because there was obviously a quality differential on that on that corridor was that that was the only spot those deer were getting killed <laughs> and you know they had a safe space they went to right after that and they had a safe summer place right where they weren't yep. weren't exposed yep. and that made that corridor special and I can tell you that extending on this, we started hunting it more, you know, like we figured it out. Right. And I noticed just anecdotally, but it sure seems to be the case that if we worked that corridor and we hammered it one year and we killed a 180 inch deer or maybe 190 inch deer, all of a sudden we wouldn't kill a big one off of it for a couple of years, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and then, and then, you know, we, we'd pick up a couple of big ones. So I guess that's an extension of the story. But it, it changed the, the dynamic of how I hunted mule deer because I realized that, one, I think these deer are way more consistent about how they move through the landscape. And there's a big – there's like little micro populations that will run a certain way down, and it's the same deer. Like I, I think that this deer, this huge deer, he probably had phenomenal genetics, everything else, but I think as a baby – his mom took him up that trail and took him down that trail. And he, he did that his whole life. I don't know that that's true, but I think that's the case because I started to hunt that way. And I realized that you've got like big buck corridors that, that are like this, you know? Very interesting, dude. That's, that's, that, that's a classic ambush hunt right there. And, and look, you know, it took, took you some time to figure it out, but that's why I wanted to ask you about this. Cause we you know we didn't talk about this off the air. I told him I was going to mention the buck, but I didn't know what he was going to say. And, um, and sure enough, dude, I knew that you would have it dialed, that you would pay attention to that because, you know, if there's any, any tip I can give people is pay attention, pay attention to everything. And, 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 and just, just what you, you noted there. And I've seen this in, in other places too, certain canyons, certain places, maybe not every time. In fact, not every time that I visit it, but they just have a propensity for the biggest deer in the area to be in that place. You know, I'm thinking of a place in Southern Idaho right now that's, you know, I may go a season or two without seeing a big deer there, but, but then I see one, but I don't see one anywhere else within a couple of miles. You know, they're always, if they're there, they're right there. I, and I don't know what that is. I don't know what causes that. I really don't. Um, uh, but, but I know I've heard of it from hunters from British Columbia to, to Mexico, to, you know, to, to, to cliff in central Colorado, you know, it, it's a neat thing. And it's, it's just, I mean, it, that's a hundred thousand dollar tip right there, Cliff. So when we get off the podcast, some guys are going to be asking you to, to, you know, give them some uh, GPS coordinates on that corridor. Tell them a hundred, hundred K or nothing. Cause you spent at least that much figuring that out. And, but, but most guys will go there and get spanked too, because of this whole expectation thing is it, my experience, because right. you're still going to have to hunt at multiple seasons. You just said it, you killed the one, didn't see any for a couple more years. Um, uh, and, and, you know, just think how many days you're going to have to hunt that a lot of us, even including me probably aren't going to put up with that we're going to be somewhere else you know but but you yeah, know and your, the, day, and your thing, data shows go ahead you know robbie i i i was a scorer for Boone and crockett uh there in that that area so i was exposed to like a lot of other big deer that came out of like that vale valley over to aspen mm -hmm. and everything wow. and a lot of these guys like i think of one individual in particular he he actually drives a snowcat up on one of the up on one of the resorts, no social media, none of that stuff. Great guy. Mm -hmm. But I scored, I think three 200 plus inch deer for him. Wow. And 
when I got to talking to him, you know, you realize like, oh, you're, you're same deal, man. You're hunting the same corridor or you're hunting the same spot. And he just kind of had it figured out. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it's just interesting. Cause I was like, it's like, that's very analogous to, to, you know, to what, what, what we found out in our area. And I think that's probably pretty common in the, the enigma to me, Robbie, it's like, okay, are these, is it, is it like the brook trout dynamic? Like you catch a, you know, you catch like a big brook trout in a little eddy and then, it, and then because of the conditions there and it's just a good location, another, you know, another big brook trout will move in there in the next like three or four days. Right. You get like these little holes. Right. Yep, yep. So is it that dynamic where there's just like, you know, just awesome conditions there that draw in, you know, a bigger deer for some reason, or, or is it that the big, you know, or is it that the big deer, you know, these big mule deer are just smarter. Cause that's kind of like what you hear a lot of the time, right? Like, okay, these big mule deer, they're just smart and they're good at avoiding hunters. And so they, you know, particularly find these little secret spots where they don't get messed with and they hang in there. Or is it just that they got lucky and just as a little baby deer, they figured out that spot and then their life pattern just let them get big. And I don't know what the answer is, but I, I always think about this. Like, I don't know. It's kind of like a chicken and egg type of thing. It, it could be any of them and it doesn't really matter, but I still, I still think about it a lot. I do too, dude. And, 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 uh, one of the best buck hunters I know is Kurt Darner, uh, right, right there out of Colorado. And he, he said something once <clears throat> and he, he said they, they react to conditions that we can't even perceive. And I think that's what we're up against is that, you know, they're able to perceive things, know things, you know, that, that we we can't even dial in on. We don't even know, you know, and, and whether that's the history of whether their mom took them there, it's a combination of feed, uh, uh, aspect, or all of the above, a a including just bum luck. I, I don't know, but I, I think that's yeah. what draws, draws us to them, draws uh, people like us to them because it, 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 it they're, they're mysterious. You, you, you know, and even if, even if that guy kills three of them, you know, he may never kill another one again. You know, they're, they're mysterious. Yeah, yeah. They're, you, you, I said it in my first book, you can't master them. You know, you, I haven't been able to, man, I, I, I spent a lifetime at it and I still haven't been able to, but, but I don't think I want to. I don't want to master them. I want to, yeah, yeah, I want sure. to always have that, like that, those questions you just asked. I always, I always want those out there, you know, cause that, that's the quest, you know, that's what's, that's, that's what keeps me going. And that's what makes me want to get out there the next day and the next season and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And one, I mean, the, the other huge piece of advice, it's going to sound like obvious. I'll tell people is these little areas are, can be so tiny. Like the one I'm talking yes. about, you're not going to figure it out. You, or you're going to take mm -hmm. years to figure it out. And these yep. other places where guys figured out, it take them take some lifetimes to figure it out, or their grandpa told them, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is uh, once you once you have those little spots figured out, don't take anybody there but your kids. Yep, exactly, man. <laughs> Loose lips. It, do, it does shit. matter. It does matter. <laughs> It does. It totally does, man. It totally does. And it's, I mean, it kind of sounds selfish, but that's why I said, man, don't, 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 don't sell that location for less than a hundred K because you spent at least <laughs> that much figuring it out. You know I mean? They're they're It's rare. It's rare air to find places like that. And they can change too. you know, fires and drought oh, yeah. and deer herd going up and down all that other stuff. It, it can change them. But, but, you know, some of these places, as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm thinking back 30 years on some places that are still 
in my mind, they're consistent producers, even though I can't go there every year and kill a big buck. They're still consistent producers. And, and if I'm going to see a big buck and say this three square miles right here, he's going to be right here. I have seen that so many times, Cliff. And, 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 and yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff you don't want out there. Yeah. Yeah. Cause <laughs> it doesn't matter. Cause to me, the big, to me, like in the spots that I have seen change, uh, the only catalyst that, that I have seen is that a couple more people are hunting it. And I could be like three or four people, Robbie, you know what I mean? Like right, right. You know, it, they, that can change one of these little, these little, these little holes. And that goes for, for little elk spots too, you know, little, little post rut bull hangouts and stuff. Once a few people start busting them in there, that all of a sudden is not a spot that they, you find them anymore, you know? Yep. Yep. No, I'm with you all, all the way. That's exactly why I wanted to have you on the uh, podcast today, Cliff. I can just tell looking at your content on Instagram and all the places I've seen you, you know, you've, you've got a unique perspective. You've got a lot of experience to back it up. And I think people can be better hunters by, by listening to you. I think they'll, uh, I think they'll get a lot out of this. Um, so for, for those of you that uh, want to follow Cliff, um, he's got a YouTube channel. It's uh, Cliff Gray. And uh, great content on there. Jump over there today. Make sure you give it a subscribe. I did a long time ago. And uh, you'll find you'll find some good stuff on there. Uh, multi-species stuff. You know, we talked a lot about deer today, but you can see he's been well-versed in, in elk, uh, too. I know you've hunted sheep a lot, uh, goat. I mean, he's got everything. Um, if you're not a YouTube person, or even if you are, jump over to Instagram. Follow um, Cliff Gray, just like it sounds. Follow him on there. Um, uh, it's, it's worth your time. And uh, Cliff, I hope to have you back on the podcast podcast uh before too long and uh maybe we'll have you on this side of the mic too yeah man thanks for having me on Robbie. okay we'll catch you later see you man